The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day in this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Law and gospel. If you are a lifelong Lutheran, those words in that order should strike a familiar tone. If you are not a lifelong Lutheran, consider this an introduction. Knowing the importance of both law and gospel, uh, but the difference between the two might sound easy or obvious, but the truth is that in many ways, this is your life's work as a follower of Jesus, figuring out the difference between the two. Too much emphasis on the law can drive you to despair because of your inability to fulfill the law or follow the law, or it might convince you because you're so obedient to the law that you make God very happy. Uh, that would make you self-righteous. That would be a danger as well. Too much emphasis on the gospel might convince you that you are perfectly free and that God's law is just kind of advice from the Bronze Age, you know, that you're free to follow or not. So we live in this constant tension as Christians of striving to be obedient to God's law but understanding that perfect obedience is impossible. Therefore, we are in need of God's forgiving grace. Martin Luther said this about the importance of this distinction. Distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom. One who every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. Where this is lacking, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian and who is a pagan or Jew. That much is at stake in this distinction. Now, to be clear, I should define these terms. Very simply, the law is what you should do. Four words, what you should do. The gospel is what God has done for you. 
But I thought it was time for such an old-fashioned reminder because of two texts this morning. One seems to extol the beauty and wonder of the law of God, and the other seems to emphasize the freeing power and nature of the gospel. So let's start with Psalm 19. This psalm really is a two-parter. Okay, the first part deals with the obvious reality of God's existence, discernible by merely looking to the heavens. It begins, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Indeed, it is often said that God has revealed himself in two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, or you might call it general revelation, available to all people, and specific revelation in the word of God. Psalm 19 says that to observe merely the created order, which we now know is infinitely more complex and beautifully designed for the possibility of life itself, uh, we know that better than the author of Psalm 19 would have known, but to observe that alone is to observe the handiwork of God. The sun and the moon do not speak with an audible voice, but they are silent witnesses to God. The psalmist says their voices go out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That is why Paul in Romans 1, I believe he has Psalm 19 in mind, and he says that no one has an excuse for their denial of God's existence or falling into idolatry. Paul writes this in Romans 1, For his invisible attributes, God's, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But God reveals himself not only in his creation, but through his words. You see the change in Psalm 19 in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Aha, so we're not talking about general revelation now, but we're talking about the specific revelation that God has offered to us in his word, in the law. Indeed, this is just the, the first of several attributes that are offered to God's law that are, to be honest, often ignored in the church. I certainly don't remember not saying it never happened, I just don't remember, a pastor or even a seminary professor telling me that the law of God was good. Maybe it's because we place so much emphasis now on the gospel in the life of the church that defending or declaring that the law is actually good is itself a kind of modern heresy. The law is assumed rather to be the enemy right, from whose dangerous tentacles we are saved by the gospel. That's how it was essentially taught to me, implicitly or explicitly, I don't remember anymore. The only problem with that message, of course, is that it is not biblical. That's always a problem. As I've already said, Psalm 19 describes the law of God not only in glowing terms, but as a pathway to a profitable life. Let's key in on four verses. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Well, not much in this life is perfect, though my wife's chocolate chip cookies are pretty close. And yet God's law is perfect. In fact, if you dare to believe it, it revives the soul. Felt down in the dumps lately? Maybe depressed? Study God's law. Even the bits that have been surely fulfilled by Christ in his sacrifice, like all the temple sacrifices and things of that nature. Maybe introspection and psychotherapy, as useful as those things may be, cannot solve the problem of melancholy. But God's law, at least according to this psalm, can help. Eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The author goes so far as to say that God's precepts rejoice the heart and enlighten the eyes. How? Why? I think it has to do with our being made in God's image. Learning God's law connects us or or reconnects us if we have fallen away to our creator. You can't quite put your finger on it. But when we know a person better, our relationship is more satisfying. Well, how are we to know God? Well, we can know him through the general revelation, as we've already said, but we know him even better through his specific revelation. The fear of the Lord, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Studying God's law puts you in touch with something that is pure. How often do we really encounter something that is pure? Let's be honest. We live in a consumeristic age. We are just dollar signs to Uh, to corporations. Our friends can betray us or let us down. Even our churches are far from perfect. Even when I buy silver, they only promise .999 purity. They can't ever get it quite over the hump. Even if you use Purell, it only kills 99.9% of the germs, and pure is right there in the title. Close, but no cigar. But God's decrees are pure. Kind of like when you're just in the presence of a kind, caring person, how that can brighten our day. Just studying God's law puts us in touch with something that really is pure. And then I hope this is a familiar verse to you. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. In a world deprived of cane sugar, honey was quite the treat, right? And one can just imagine a pot of gold, literally a pot of gold on one side and God's law on the other. And the psalmist says, take the law. Forget the gold, take the law, right? Do we remember the context of this verse, though? You see, it isn't some vague notion about God in general that is to be desired more than gold. It is his specific decrees his specific decrees and ordinances. Oh, but pastor, don't you know that preaching on the goodness of the law 
In this way, it will only lead people to legalism. Don't you know that the law cannot save? Yes, I'm well aware. And this text does not say that the law of God does save. It says that it is good. And like anything that is good, it can be ignored or neglected or abused. And there can be no question that in Jesus' day, it was abused. That's why we hear of these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes even. They existed in this era of Jesus' ministry for the purpose of preserving the law, and they overshot the mark. Remember that Jesus ministered during a time called Second Temple Judaism. I mean, we call it that. They didn't call it that. But Second Temple Judaism, this is after the exile into Babylon. They've now returned. In fact, our, our text from Nehemiah is all about the bringing of the law of God in the rebuilt temple and, and offering a prayer and giving thanks to God for the rebuilt temple. Okay, Nehemiah and Ezra are both about the resettling of Israel. And so the, the Pharisees essentially exist to keep Israel from falling back into idolatry lest they be exiled again. It wasn't fun in Babylon. Let's not do that again, people, right? And yet they overshoot the mark. And so Jesus' ministry includes exhortation, right? exhortation to be obedient to the law. Jesus doesn't go around being like, yeah, sure, live however you want, right? But also a much-needed message of forgiveness and mercy and grace. For while the law is good, there is no one who can keep it perfectly, save Jesus himself. So as I said, we're, we're, we're back to this, this thing, how the Christian lives knowing we need to be uh, uh, obedient to the law, but also knowing we cannot do so perfectly. And so in Luke 4, we have a, a, just a beautiful, profound text where Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah and he reads what can only be described as pure gospel. Jesus has been sent to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is true. As good as the law of God is, it cannot save. It was never meant to. We are indeed born to sin, and it has a hold on every aspect of our being, our mind, our souls, our bodies, our wills. Even perfect obedience, were it possible, could not pay off the greatest debt of all, the debt of death itself. Even Jesus had to die because he became sin so that we would not have to. And yet we do proclaim this message of freedom. Because of the death of Jesus, because of his resurrection from the dead, those who trust in Christ receive these gifts. The elimination of the accusing voice of shame, the promise of eternal feasting, the promise of a glorified body that doesn't break or get cancer, or get dementia. The promise that with the Spirit's help, we need not be temptation's slave. In other words, real and true freedom. To be honest, it's really too good to imagine. We can't even imagine a life without those things. So you see law and gospel, both good, both important, 
Despising the law of God is not what the gospel should be about. Quite the contrary. Those saved from obedience of the law give thanks to God. And out of love for their neighbor, they seek obedience to God's law. That's exactly what Romans, uh, Romans 6 says. You know, now that we're freed from the law, should we be disobedient? And Paul says, heck no. In fact, we, we follow the law as Christians. And by the way, that brings about a good world. Okay? We need to be more bold in saying that. <laughs> Obedience to God's law brings about a good world, not a, not a world of puppets and slaves, a good world. Ignoring the law or mocking the law, as to be honest, some Christians are prone to do, should never be acceptable among Christians. Even those parts that are obscure, that we joke about, shellfish and the whole bit. We should never mock those laws. They are equally pure, and those are the laws mentioned in Psalm 19. It also remains true that we cannot and we will not escape the penalty for our sin of disobedience. Only Jesus did that. So thanks be to God that he has indeed come for us, come among us, to proclaim us free from our captivity and oppression. For he was perfectly obedient to God's law, and he even conquered sin's greatest penalty, death itself. Amen.